0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, In Good Company. I'm Nikola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian so and Fund. In this podcast, I talk to the leaders of some of the largest companies we are invested in so that you can learn what we own and meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm speaking to Adam Selipsky, CEO of Amazon Web Services, the largest cloud provider in the world. We own over 1% of Amazon. This translates to 80 billion Norwegian kroner or over 8.1 billion US dollars. This means that each Norwegian owns 15,000 kroner in this company. Most of the internet is run on cloud-based services, but how does the cloud work? How do they protect it? And how is AWS competing with Microsoft and Google? Tune in. Now, the cloud is the backbone of everything digital, and you control a third of this market. Now, you've got customers such as Netflix, Apple, NASA, CIA, Tesla, Spotify, and so on. So just to kick off with the basics here, what is the cloud?
1: Uh, the cloud is essentially the ability for companies of all sizes, all types, to run all of their infrastructure in a way that feels infinite and like it has no specific place. That's why you have the metaphor of the cloud. So customers, uh, companies used to have data centers. Uh, They would buy or rent the data centers. They'd buy servers. They'd hook up networking. Uh, They'd worry about uh, keeping those uh, servers up and running. And when AWS uh, launched in 2006 and pioneered the cloud, all of a sudden there was this uh, illusion of infinite capacity. Like you could just tap into compute capacity. You could tap into storage capacity. And it didn't matter to you where it was or how it worked. You just had to concentrate on serving your customers, building your applications, instead of worrying about, uh, 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 about IT infrastructure. So
0: how much of the total IT in the world is now in the cloud? You
1: know, it's, it's hard to know exactly, but um, I'd estimate probably somewhere in the realm of 10% of IT has moved to the cloud. And it, people think it's a lot higher than that because there have been a lot of dollars that have moved to the cloud. Uh, but they forget that uh, there are a lot of IT dollars spent in the world. There's maybe several trillion dollars of IT spent per year. And so uh, even though a lot of dollars have moved, we're probably still only in the you know, 10 15% range. And uh, that means there's a, a, a huge amount of uh, workloads that are still going to be moving to the cloud for years to come. So actually, we're very early in this cloud migration.
0: Stupid question. But how do you actually move the data to the cloud? I assume you don't transfer it through Wi-Fi.
1: Well, it's a, it's not a stupid question at all. It's it's a very important question. And uh, data moves a lot of different ways. Um, it depends on how much data you have and where you are. Um, sometimes people just transfer data uh, across the internet, uh, just from uh, the servers that they ha- have right across the internet. But often when we have you know, big organizations with a lot of data, people... Um, a- a- it requires um, you know higher throughput to get the data up into the cloud. And also you, you really want to be careful about uh, about security and privacy. So uh, many of our customers set up uh, a, a dedicated connections, essentially a, a direct connect uh, over a private connection to AWS and that can be, again, just like all other aspects of the cloud, that can be scaled up or scaled down to whatever size it needs to be. And we'll be securely transferring uh, data over those you know, private, encrypted, direct connections to us.
0: Now, you've been very important in the startup world because you enable companies to kick off with a business without making huge investments in IT structure. So, what are some of the ventures that you have
1: backed? Uh, it's uh, you're right. It's uh, when AWS started, it was really with a vision of enabling you know a- anybody, even a kid in a college dorm room, to have access to the same you know powerful uh, compute infrastructure. That even the largest uh, companies, the largest enterprises in the world had, and so that what that really meant was developers, and it really meant a lot of startups. And uh, to this day, startups are still you know kind of deep uh, deep in the DNA of who we think we are. So in the early days, uh, there were uh, companies like Netflix, uh, uh, Airbnb, Pinterest. Of course, they're no longer considered startups; those are all enterprises now. But they were all startups. And then later on came companies like uh, like Stripe and CrowdStrike. Uh, again, big companies now who uh, who used to be startups, and uh, we, we're still at it. So uh, if you look at unicorns, the uh, startups who are worth over a billion dollars, over 80% of the world's unicorns uh, run on AWS. And it's a great, great privilege to work with all of those innovators.
0: Wow. Well done. Now, if we take these data centers, they are immense, right? Tell us about one of the bigger ones. I, I mean, how large are they?
1: Well, uh, AWS um, is is built from an infrastructure perspective on this concept of regions, which is really, really important. So we have 32 independent infrastructure regions around the world, uh, many in the US and Canada, uh, UK, uh, many in the EU, um, Australia, India, China, Japan, Korea, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So 32 full-fledged regions around the world. And each of those regions has you know, multiple, what we call availability zones. Each one has at least three availability zones per region. And that's a really, really important set of concepts because it provides incredible resilience for customers. So each region is built to operate independently. Uh, if you have uh, any kind of problem in one region, it's not going to uh, affect you in another region. And even inside of a region, if you architect so that your uh, your resources run uh, inside of multiple availability zones uh, inside of a region, they're also built to, uh, to 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 be available separately. You know, not to fail uh, for the same reasons. And so uh, our customers can build very very highly resilient uh, applications with very high uh, high uptime. And uh, each each availability zone could be just one data center, or it's usually a pretty large data center. Or an availability zone could actually be you know, a, a conglomeration of, of a number of big data centers all put together. It all depends on how much customer demand we have in the region for, uh, for those workloads. But we have a very large, you know, very scaled uh, worldwide infrastructure.
0: So let's say you and I would jump in a car and we'll go and visit a big one. How big is it?
1: uh you're going to see a whole series of data centers they're going to be hard to find by the way we don't advertise them and put our names on them uh you know security is more important than uh than marketing uh but you know we 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 can have data centers with uh you know many 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 thousands of servers in them
0: so we open the door you and i we go into the center what do we see what's what's in
1: there well, to start with, by the way, we'll have trouble getting in. So my my badge, my employee badge won't work at the data centers because I don't need to go inside of them every day. I would have to get special permission. And, uh, you know, our very security conscious uh, customers, you know, want to know that there are uh, extremely effective uh, security controls, both physical as well as virtual controls. But assuming we get permission and we actually go inside, uh, we'll have to get past, you know, physical barriers to get inside. We'll have to get past, you know, significant security to go inside. Uh, we wouldn't be allowed in to any sensitive area. But if we just pretend uh, for a moment that we are, uh, we'd see, you know, many, many banks uh, of of servers and uh, really just a small number of human beings who are absolutely essential for keeping those servers running, for uh, replacing any servers uh, or disk drives, for example, with or, or power supplies with with issues. And uh, it it would look uh, uh, hopefully very clean and very orderly. Hopefully, it would look very boring, because when everything's operating very smoothly, there's actually nothing to see, which is the best state of affairs.
0: Yeah. Now, I assume that when CIA trusts you with the data, it's probably pretty secure. How much does the data demand change during the year or during the week? I mean, something like Black Friday, when there's huge retail demand, what kind of fluctuations are you seeing overall?
1: Uh, overall, uh, AWS has uh, actually very smooth demand patterns and uh, that's uh, an effect of the scale at which we operate. Uh, and that's one of the huge advantages we, we offer our customers. So uh, if you're a retailer, as you alluded to, um, in the, the December holiday season or Black Friday leading up to it, you're gonna have a huge spike. If you're a tax company in the US, you're gonna have a huge spike in April when taxes are due. If you're a news organization, you probably have a big spike, you know, first thing in the morning, uh, and maybe at lunchtime, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and basically, with the scale at which AWS uh, operates, we're, we're over a, a $90 billion a year revenue organization. Again, with those um, 32 full infrastructure regions around the world, um, we, we essentially aggregate all of that demand. So when one company has high demand, another has low, and then they, they, they flip. And so that makes our infrastructure very uh, very efficient and uh, lowers our cost structure because we're making high utilization all of, of all of the uh, infrastructure resources. And that in turn allows us to uh, charge really low prices for customers and to keep, keep dropping prices to customers. We've lowered prices over 120 times uh, in the past 17 years uh, since we launched. But really our ability to, to manage all those peaks and valleys for customers uh, throughout the course of their day, their week, their month, their year um, is one of the benefits that we provide to them.
0: And so just for the listener, we have all of our operations in the cloud with you guys. We pay roughly 70 million Norwegian krona per year for that service. Now, you were one of the pioneers in the, in the cloud services, but now you have competitors such as Microsoft, Google, and they have been gaining ground and actually are growing slightly faster than you. So how are you competing with them? How do you win or lose business?
1: Well, I mean, we've had robust competition uh, for a long time, as we should, by the way. And uh, I like to say, if you look to your left and you look to your right and you don't see anybody next to you, you, you may have dramatically overestimated the attractiveness of your market segment. Uh, and it is a it is a fast-growing and attractive segment. And so um, customers appropriately have uh, have a lot of choices, which we think is is good for customers. And by the way, I think at the end of the day, is good for us. It keeps us sharper and Make sure that we we keep our focus on uh, really what we need to do to to delight customers. So I, I think that uh, AWS, as you alluded to, uh, was the pioneer of the cloud. We launched in two thousand and six, um, and lots of folks scratched their heads and said, "What does this have to do with selling books?" I can't I can't tell you how many times I got asked that question. And of course, the answer is it has nothing to do with selling books. But the technology that we built to sell books has everything to do with our exposing that same technology for uh, many, many other organizations to use. But because it came from Amazon, that some people said, oh, they're just a bookseller, and you know nobody will use this. And then startups began using it, and they said, well, no enterprise will ever use it. And then enterprises started using it, and they said, well, nobody will ever run mission critical applications on it. And uh, then we started doing things like uh, powering Netflix and uh, controlling uh, NASA's Mars rover, you know SUV-sized vehicles on the surface of Mars, and people started to get the idea that mission-critical workloads were indeed running in the cloud. And so I think we just proved ourselves over a number of years. Uh, we also moved very, very fast uh, on product innovation, and it was probably five to seven years uh, before uh, other companies really started to come out with even vaguely, uh, you know, competitive uh, offerings. And uh, our founder Jeff Bezos has actually publicly called that five to seven year head start the largest gift in business history. Now I have no idea if that's true or not, but it's just an interesting concept.
0: What does he mean by that?
1: Well, it means that we we had five to seven years to build a large array of you know really powerful, really important services uh, to gain traction. Uh, to get a customer base, most importantly, to gain knowledge, to gain experience about what it took to operate really, really well in this new business.
0: But why were the other people so slow?
1: I think because we were so threatening to their business model. They didn't want to believe it. If you look at the old guard of technology companies, particularly software companies, uh, in some cases hardware companies, for 30 or 40 years, um, they, uh, they overcharged customers. Uh, they intentionally locked them in, so they made it hard to leave. And uh, we really offered a completely new model of not having to commit, um, being able to uh, elastically use as much or as little as you want, uh, to see your prices go down continuously, not going up continuously, uh, all while being highly available, highly secure, and, and highly reliable. Um, and so it was, it was really threatening to those high prices and high margins by by these other uh, technology companies. And so it was easier to find excuses to dismiss us as not knowing what we were doing, rather than to see the enormous customer value that was being created. Now at some point it, it, it became uh, obvious and inevitable uh, to see how customers were voting. And of course we had other customers get into uh, uh, this this market segment. And, you know, over time, you give it enough years and you're, you know, a competent technology company. There, there are absolutely other, um, uh, other offerings out there. And, um, you know, we, we try not to be naive and to understand what competitors are doing. But we still, to this day, you know, focus the vast, vast majority of our time, our effort, our mental energy on uh, being customer obsessed and figuring out you know, what customers need us to do as opposed to having a competitively driven strategy.
0: How does artificial intelligence change the landscape? Are all the language models now trained in the cloud?
1: I think AI is, well, to start with, AI is enabled by the cloud. I mean, really in the long run, if you look at the, uh, the amount of compute resources which are required both to train uh, these models as well as to run inference or, or, or run these models in production, um, the, uh, the, the capacity requirements and, and therefore the, uh, the potential costs uh, can, can be really enormous. And uh, those will happen in the cloud because the economics and the, uh, the the capacity availability will be much, much higher in the cloud than elsewhere. So I really view uh, generative AI and, and AI in general as uh, the next big, big thing that is happening in the cloud. Now, it's not just one thing. Uh, I mean, generative AI is going to you know, fundamentally change. You know, many, many technologies will fundamentally impact probably every application that you and I interact with, both in our professional and our personal lives. So it's fundamental, but it's not a a different thing. It is the next huge thing that will happen in the cloud. And uh, it's very much tied to your data strategy. So we have all of these uh, uh, companies who have uh, built data platforms on AWS and have vast amounts of data in the cloud. And that data is what helps them differentiate with generative AI. There are are these models there, but what you've got to do is bring your data to the models, whether it's your customer service data, your investor data, uh, your uh, uh, medical research data, whatever it is, and and use that data to your advantage using these new powerful uh, large language models. And uh, helping companies to really marry together their data and their generative AI strategies, we think, is what's going to unlock the real power, the real value. And is
0: that why you now invest billions in Anthropic, which is competing with OpenAI?
1: Yeah, op- um, uh, Anthropic um, used AWS from the very beginning when they were founded uh, a few years ago. And uh, as our relationship with them has deepened, um, I, th- I think that uh, we provided a-, a really great opportunity for them to, um, to get access to massive amounts of compute capacity, which they need to train their Claude. Models are now in Claude2, which is a, a really leading-edge model. It's as, as good as anything in the world. And at the same time, uh, they're really smart people. And we saw that there was an opportunity to collaborate with them and have them uh, help us to optimize and improve um, uh, the, the hardware, the, uh, the, the custom-designed chips that AWS um, uh, designs. And uh, we decided to deepen that partnership together. And as one element of it, we also did invest uh, into Anthropic. So it's a tight partnership. It's a special partnership. Anthropic um, now uses AWS as its primary uh, cloud provider. And uh, I think we'll be partnering together for a long time to come. You've got
0: competitors in the US and China, but no European competitor. Why is Europe so slow here?
1: Um, I, I think it's true that if you just look, you know, globally, um, uh, the, the the largest uh, public cloud providers um, have been U.S.-based companies, and as you said, um, especially inside of China, um, Chinese-based companies. Um, but there are uh, there are Europe, you know, smaller European-based uh, competitors as, as well, and um, I think uh, you know it's very dynamic and uh, a quickly moving space. And uh, I think there are opportunities for, for companies from um, uh, from all countries if they got a, a great value proposition to, uh, um, to uh, gain market segment shares. So, you know, for now, this is the way it's played out. But, uh, you know, we I, I think uh, we all need to stay very alert.
0: Well, you're very diplomatic, Adam. But when we look at many different industries, Europe is a bit behind in innovation, in technology and so on. Now, wh- why do you think it is? Because when I look into some of your business principles, you have words like big, fast, and so on. And these are not very European slogans.
1: Well, we we, we partner with a great number of European companies, whether it's systems integrators like uh, Capgemini, um, whether it's software companies like uh, uh, Sage uh, in the UK that I just uh, spoke with last week. and I see a lot of innovation uh, happening in Europe. Um, I, I think a you know, lot's been written and said about uh, how venture capital works and how... Uh, how much funding you know, happens of companies uh, in the U.S. And I think a lot of the VCs are, are looking more internationally these days. So I think there's there's a good chance that uh, the innovation continues to to grow and flourish in a lot of different countries around the world. Uh, you know, India is another place where people are really looking to, uh, looking at for innovation to come out of. Um, so, again, I think it's very dynamic. And um, I think there have been great conditions for, for technical innovation in the U.S., for sure, uh, but I think you'll see it in other countries over time as well.
0: Now, these data centers are very energy intensive. How do you plan for a more sustainable future?
1: Well, that is an incredibly important. It is, is one of the most uh, in question, uh, important topics um, that we could touch on. So uh, Amazon has taken a very public uh, pledge to be um, net zero carbon across all of Amazon, retail, AWS, everything, uh, by 2040. Uh, which is 10 years ahead of the Paris Accords and is a very big, bold uh, public commitment. We did it publicly instead of privately because we wanted to uh, both put a forcing function on ourselves, frankly, because it's difficult, uh, as well as to really catalyze and help inspire other organizations, other companies, to join us in uh, uh, helping to fight, uh, fight climate change. We have over 400 other organizations, including many large companies, who have signed on to the Climate Pledge, so we're we're really gratified by that. Now, we can't just wait till 2040, and we have a lot of interim uh, goals along the way, one of which is to be 100% renewable energy powered by 2025. Now, obviously that is just around the corner, and uh, the good news is we are already over 90% renewable energy powered across all of Amazon, but a huge part of that, uh, of course, comes from um, AWS uh, data centers. So we're already at ninety percent, on our way to one hundred percent. And one of the big ways we do that is by being uh, the largest corporate purchaser of renewable energy on Earth over the past three years. And uh, it's we've we've uh, uh, done long term funding for wind farms, for solar projects around the world, um, including you know the first offshore wind in Japan project, and uh, many others like it. It's also really important that we innovate to just use less energy. Period. And uh, I mentioned custom-designed chips a little while ago. So uh, the first uh, AWS, we certainly buy a lot of a lot of chips for our servers from a, a lot of really great partners. But in addition, uh, for a number of years now, AWS has actually designed its own chips, uh, which customers can use in you know different different servers, virtual servers. And uh, that general purpose chip is called Graviton. Our, our Graviton-based uh, um, uh, chip um, actually consumes 60% less power than equivalent, uh, equivalent chips that our customers use. So simply by moving into the cloud and then moving onto our Graviton-based capacity, uh, customers can you know, uh, reduce their en- energy consumption by up to 60%.
0: If you look at the chips that you buy, how much do you now develop yourself, and how much are you still dependent on the likes of Nvidia? Um,
1: I, I think it's a big mix. Um, you know, we we have in the kind of classical x86 based uh, chip architecture. We're great partners with Intel, uh, with AMD uh, in the GPU space. Uh, we're great partners with Nvidia and have a very tight relationship with Nvidia. Um, so we we continue to uh, to buy and use you know enormous quantities of chips from all of those uh, all of those companies and. And I don't, I don't foresee any change in that uh, in the foreseeable future.
0: How could quantum computing change your business?
1: Uh, I, I think quantum computing is 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 uh, potentially, you know, very disruptive, very exciting. Is also, I think, a lot of unknowns, and it's is years away. So we're we're investing in quantum now, uh, both internally inside of Amazon, as well as we've uh, funded a lot of research at uh, places like uh, Harvard University, uh, Cal Poly, um, uh, Caltech. And uh, will continue to do so. I, I think that um, it, it's a, a proposition which, you know, in a number of years from now, uh, could really be disruptive to, uh, to how computing is done. Uh, but there are a lot, it's very, very early. There are a, a lot of unsolved questions which, which need to be solved before it becomes a, a viable technology at scale.
0: But when it is a viable technology, how is that world going to be different What's going to be the main change?
1: Uh, the main change would be uh, the ability to do, you know, vastly uh, larger, more powerful uh, computing jobs at uh, much faster and at much lower cost. Uh, I mean, that is the that is the dream, um, and uh, I think there's a good chance that the world gets there. But uh, there's supposed to be a lot of, of scientific research uh, as well as uh, uh, applied. Um, Uh, Applied computer science to to make that happen. And we're investing in it. I know a lot of other companies uh, are as well. And uh, I think it's a great, uh, 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 an area of great potential for the world. But uh, at the same time, as we uh, keep that eye towards the the future, uh, we're keeping the other eye on the technologies we need today uh, to improve price performance for our customers.
0: And in your opinion, how do we stack up against China, both on the AI side, but also on quantum computing?
1: Um, well, on quantum, I'd say it's 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 too early to really answer that question. Uh, I think it's it's hard to know um, actually who's who's proceeding at what pace. It's it's still very early. Uh, on AI, uh, I mean, again, to the best of my knowledge, I'll say uh, I think that uh, uh, the U.S. and the Western world is is proceeding really well. I think that um, you know there are great great leaders uh, in the AI space, and what I really like is that some of them are are big companies like Amazon. Um, and some of them are very very young startups, uh, like Anthropic, you know, or Cohere, or Stability AI, or AI Twenty One, all of whom are are, are great uh, AWS startup partners. Or Hugging Face is another one. And uh, it's uh, I, I think that mix is really important for innovation, having the resources of big companies along with the fresh thinking of uh, of, of very young uh, smaller companies. And so I think that. Uh, the, the U.S. and the Western world is, is very well positioned. I think we have a lot of questions around not only where the technology will go, but how you think about responsible AI and ethical AI and making sure that um, these capabilities are used in the right way. And uh, we're, we're, we're busy at work, um, as you can imagine, in, in, in all of those areas, you know, technical, uh, out there in the market with customers, as well as uh, very intently with um, regulators and policymakers.
0: Do you think the tech companies are able to self-regulate AI?
1: Uh, I think tech companies, it's very important that tech companies you know, participate very vocally in the discussion. I don't think it will only be tech companies self-regulating. I think that uh, it will be uh, partially up to governments and potentially multinational organizations uh, to provide guidance and to provide regulatory frameworks. And I think countries should um, have a voice in saying, here's how we want AI to proceed uh, inside of our, uh, our country. And I think that um, Tech companies have a lot of experience. We're the ones with the technology and with the customers, so we have really important voices in that conversation. And we're helping very actively to shape those conversations. You know, I was at the White House this summer uh, when President Biden announced uh, his uh, voluntary commitments around AI, which about seven companies signed up for. Um, later this week, I will be in the in the UK at the uh, AI Safety Summit that the UK government uh, is putting on, which will have a lot of uh, world leaders at and. Uh, we're we're devoting the time and the resources to participating in those forums, participating in those discussions, and I think that uh, industry needs to come together along with uh, academia as well as policymakers and regulators uh, to figure out with this powerful set of new technologies uh, how we can uh, ensure you know safe, responsible uh, uh, use with a lot of visibility into it. While at the same time, and this is essential, not qu- squashing innovation. We've got to let companies keep on innovating, uh, particularly as some of, the companies you, uh, some of the countries you mentioned uh, are probably not going to worry so much, are going to keep on innovating. Uh, and so we have to make sure that uh, our, our countries and our companies keep on innovating unfettered as well.
0: Talking about innovation, you are also launching a satellite network to provide broadband akin to what Starlink is doing. So what is it? You launched a few satellites. You're looking at several thousands of them eventually. So so what is it? What are, this is this going to do?
1: Well, uh, the, uh, it is very exciting. You're referring to Project Kuiper with a K. And uh, it's a, a whole satellite uh, capability being launched actually by a sister division to AWS. It's, it's being spearheaded by another part of Amazon, uh, although AWS partners uh, very closely with them. So uh, we will, over the next uh, several years, have several thousand uh, LEO or low-Earth orbit satellites uh, up around Earth. Um, just a few weeks ago, we launched our first two test satellites, which was a very exciting milestone. Uh, those tests have gone really well, um, really as well or better than than what one could have hoped. And so uh, those teams are going to uh, keep pressing forward you know, really urgently and, and relentlessly and, and as fast as possible, um, getting the first production satellites up uh, uh, next year and then moving into uh, commercial availability for customers after that. Um, and the, the the first and primary mission of Project Kuiper was to provide internet access to unserved and underserved uh, people around the world. And there are billions of those people who are either unserved or underserved. And uh, I'm really excited for that mission. I think over the next several years, it's going to be really exciting. We're obviously still early in that journey, but uh, Amazon takes a very you know, long-term view of most things. And uh, we think it'll be an amazing set of offerings for customers for many years to come. So that's
0: a great place to pivot to your corporate culture because you are one of the longest term thinking companies I know. What kind of time frame do you operate within when you plan?
1: Yeah, it, it's true. I do think that's one of the um most distinguishing things about Amazon is we we do tend to take very uh, long-term views in our planning horizons. And uh, it it's such a it's such a tool for us. it's it's so powerful because instead of looking at things on a, you know, a 90-day cycle is a quarterly basis. You know, we're thinking about, you know, what can we do three, five, ten years from now to serve customers really well and to create great businesses for ourselves and to make, to make decisions based on those criteria. And a lot of companies um, choose not to have that long-term viewpoint. I, I think it's very limiting.
0: But what is it that makes people think short-term?
1: I, I think um, uh, there's a lot of investor sentiment around, you know, quarterly uh, earnings in the U.S., for example. And there's tremendous pressure, and I I, th- I think that if you have a culture where um, you know you care a, a lot about um, uh, the, the optics, short-term optics, uh, and you uh, you just don't focus yourself as much on creating long, long-term value for customers, then you kind of end up in that trap. Now, I'm not saying short-term results don't matter. You know they do, and uh, you know having having targets and, and hitting them you know matters, but. Um, you know, really building building a business for the long term is what matters the most. And I think we've done a good job over time about you know trying to run a good business in the short term uh, while really building you know enormous value for the long term.
0: Well, Sam Altman from OpenAI said that long term thinking is a competitive advantage because so few people do it. What are some of the longest term investments you've made at Amazon?
1: Well, we've talked about Kuiper, and uh, you know that. Uh, that probably started, call it five years ago, and uh, it's we're, we're just at this exciting stage of starting to launch satellites, and it'll be another couple of years before that full constellation is is up. So uh, that is very capital intensive for sure, and and long term proposition. Uh, I think we've been talking for the past uh, thirty or forty minutes about a, a really good example, which is AWS. If you go back in time, um, you know, Amazon was was you know, mainly a, a retailer. Uh, had a few retail categories. And then there was this crazy idea about uh, you know turning Amazon inside out, offering up the guts of Amazon uh, for other companies to use. And uh, a lot of people didn't understand it. Other people uh, thought it was crazy. And it was definitely a long-term proposition because it requires uh, uh, not only building all of the software services that we that we offer customers today around compute and storage and database and machine learning and AI and uh, call center operations and everything in between, uh, but also uh, spending all of the the capital required for the, the data centers and the servers and all that infrastructure that we've already discussed. And um, you know, we knew it would it would take years uh, for it to become. Um, a big business and, and a profitable business. But at the same time, you know, we believed and still believe that in time, in the fullness of time, it could be the biggest business that Amazon has.
0: It's probably the majority of the value of your company now, isn't it? If you look at the whole Amazon?
1: Hard, hard to say. I, I think that all of the pieces of Amazon work very well together. I, I leave it to the uh, to the investment community to try and sort out, you know, which pieces are uh, are worth what. But uh, we, we see many, many companies now who want to bi- do business with all of the different areas of Amazon. So you know, automotive companies who want to do business with AWS and integrate our, our devices and entertainment systems into the vehicles and supply Amazon with uh, uh, with electric um, uh, delivery vehicles. And that's just the automotive industry. So I, I think all the pieces of AW- of Amazon work very, very well together.
0: But also Amazon retail business, which is where the whole thing started was running for ages on negative and very thin margins,
1: right? Well, certainly, in the early days, uh, the, it, Jeff became very, uh, I think well known for the mantra of uh, get big fast. That was you know really a term here at Amazon, and that preceded my time here at the company, by the way. But uh, I, I think that was that was a really big thing. And uh, the company really believed that you know achieving that scale in retail was going to be uh, really, really important. And it would help price. It would help customer selection. And it would help convenience and delivery speeds if they could uh, get big fast, and and they did. And again, that took uh, that took a very long term perspective instead of just you know worrying about uh, uh, the very very short term. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know the retail business has been great. You know it is a retail business, and obviously, you know, retail businesses, um, you know uh, uh, you have to be uh, appropriately cost conscious. Those folks have always done a great job of really investing for the future while also you know being being really really efficient. And uh, it's it's been uh, uh, it's been great to partner with them and see the results that they've achieved. A
0: lot of companies say they are customer focused. Now, you really are customer focused. How can we see that?
1: So it's a great question because you're right. Everybody does say they're customer focused, and um, I, I think that a lot of people think that customer focus is somehow an emotional attribute. Uh, and on this emotional scale, you'll go from, you know, maybe disliking your customers, we could all point to a few, custom, a few companies who don't seem to like their customers very much, to maybe liking your customers, and then the highest on that scale would be, you know, loving your customers. And I, I think, uh, in my opinion, um, that is not what customer obsession uh, is really about. Although I think loving your customers is a good thing. But at Amazon, and I think the reason why uh, we actually are so customer obsessed, I think that what it means is Two things, one, understanding customers at an incredibly deep level, a level that is hard to achieve, a level that takes effort continuously, and most companies simply you know, don't go through all of the energy, don't expand the energy and go through the effort required to understand you know, on each one of their services, each use case, case, what do customers really need from you? What, are, what real problems do they have? And then, uh, as hard as that is, that actually turns out to be the, the easier of the two things. The second is to ensure that every important decision you make is taken from that customer perspective. I've seen a lot of companies you know, outside of here who they actually understand a fair amount about the customers, but then when they decide to price something, it's just about profit maximization. Or if they decide whether to build something, it's about, well, you know, can we afford to build it? And they kind of drop the customer perspective outside the door you know, for some weird reason. And I think you have to have the discipline to say, we, we not only have all this knowledge about what customers really need, we are gonna bring it into the room and make sure that we're basing our decision around that. And you see that it embody itself in a lot of different ways at Amazon. It's not just talk, it's not just a philosophy. Uh, one example is um, we, we have this, this fairly well-known mechanism called a, a press release slash FAQ process, PR What that means is that uh, before, we, uh, before we build anything substance a new service um, a new aws feature we'll actually write a full press release along with a full faq doesn't matter whether we ever actually issue that press release or not Uh, and the idea being that you need to be able to describe in 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 detail uh, why what you're building matters how it's going to delight customers or why would you bother to waste your engineer's time on it and that we call that our working backwards process and it's a process that uh, i've actually got a number of customers who have seen loved and and adopted, and we actually um, go in and do workshops with a number of our customers to, to teach that technique. It's it's very powerful, and a lot of our customers are, have, have really uh, uh, grasped it.
0: It's interesting. I spoke to some of the people who were in charge of the selection of AWS as a partner, and as you can imagine, we are a government entity entirely. So these processes are really thorough and can take a long time. As they should be. But one of the really differentiating factors was that it was very, very clear to us that you really cared about us as a client. And that spirit has endured after we signed the contract and you guys have really delivered, so well done.
1: Yeah, it it just seems so basic. Uh, It's so important for AWS. You know, uh, I tell my teams all the time that your job is to go form long-term trusted relationships. And uh, the business part will take care of itself if you do that. I I think so much springs from that and uh, people get really caught up in their own short-term concerns that, it's easy to forget that. And we try here to make sure that we don't.
0: You have some really cool leadership principles which are publicly known. What is the most important one for you?
1: This is like choosing between your children. It's, it's just not, it's not fair. <laughs> we have, um, we have 16 leadership principles that they're, they're uh, not just in some manual, they're alive and well. Uh, I sometimes call them the operating system of, uh, of Amazon or, or the central nervous system. Uh, customer obsession is vital for sure. Uh, I, I think the, uh, another one which is absolutely core is invent and simplify. And uh, that's really about innovating and also uh, embodies the principle that um, innovating doesn't mean just making things more complicated. It means uh, uh, making them more powerful, but also more simple. And uh, uh, you know, we, we've always tried to you know, move very fast as a company. And in fact, one of the reasons why AWS was founded was because Amazon wanted to move faster and they wanted to create the shared layer of infrastructure services so all the other teams at Amazon could worry about their customers and not about infrastructure. And uh, so we've, I think we've built in many, many mechanisms to, to move fast. We, we hire people who like to build, who are innovative. We organize for speed. Uh, a lot of people think speed is preordained. We think speed is a choice. And so we organize ourselves both culturally as well as you know, just our teams themselves uh, to be able to innovate and to be able to do it really, really quickly. And so I, I think that invent and simplify uh, is incredibly important for customers. And it's actually been a, a huge advantage for Amazon uh, in the market segments we're in as well.
0: You have something called a two-pizza team. What is that?
1: So a two-pizza team. So uh, the concept of that is you know, wherever possible, you should have a team no larger than can be fed with two pizzas. And uh, we've had a lot of teams at Amazon over the years who actually are two-pizza teams. And even when, you know, with our scale, uh, you obviously have teams that, uh, that grow larger than that. And uh, we very often try and refactor or slice those, uh, those teams up to create even smaller, more nimble teams. Um, but even where we don't actually do that, it's, it's the concept that's alive and well. And the concept is, you know, stay small, stay nimble, and very, very importantly, you know, control your destiny. Uh, you know, don't, don't take dependencies wherever, where you don't have to on many other teams. You know, figure out how to uh, be able to, to, to own your own progress, uh, overcome your own obstacles, and make rapid progress for customers.
0: What's special about the meeting culture in Amazon?
1: Well, we do do something which is um, unusual, uh, which is we, uh, we pretty much never use uh, PowerPoint to run an internal meeting. Um, so for most internal meetings, uh, somebody writes uh, a narrative, uh, a, a document, and uh, it could be short or it could be up to six pages, no longer than six pages. And when we come into a meeting, the first thing we do is say hello, and then we all sit down and read. So we might spend the first 15 to 30 minutes of a meeting simply reading. And when everybody's finished reading the document, there's no presentation. Um, somebody just says, okay, what questions do we have? And uh, it's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful mechanism. It's, to me, it is one of like, the most powerful ways to, uh, uh, to move the business forward because it creates real understanding. With, with, uh, with PowerPoint bullets, it's, it's so easy to be on the surface. Um, it's so easy also to not get through the material because uh, you just interrupt the presenter. With the narrative, you are forced. It is very obvious if, you've, if you have not thought through a problem, problem deeply with a four-page or a six-page uh, uh, narrative. Um, so you, you, you have to have depth of thought. You have to have been able to lay out uh, all of the issues uh, to have a good conversation. And in addition, it's very egalitarian. By the end of reading the document, everybody has the same information. You know, nobody has special knowledge. And then uh, anybody in the room, regardless of who they are, um, can ask questions, and uh, it's all from the same fact base. And so it's been uh, one of the most, to me personally, one of the most amazing mechanisms that I've seen at Amazon uh, to really help uh, create deep understanding, to make decisions, and to move our businesses forward.
0: Moving on to leadership, what is the most challenging part of being the CEO of AWS?
1: Uh, I would say, well, I sometimes joke that I uh, I fear that I'll wake up in the morning and, and somebody will tell me that I work at a big company. Now, I guess I, I do happen to work at a big company, but uh, I never want it to feel that way. I never want our customers to feel that way. And um, you know, there's this con- concept of of uh, insurgents versus incumbents. And you know, in- insurgents don't mind disrupting. Insurgents, you know, just want to create new things and want to create value. And uh, incumbents um, want to preserve value and worry about what they already have instead of worrying about what they can build for customers. And I think um, it's very easy as you grow larger and you have revenue streams and you have businesses to slip into that incumbent mentality. And I think one of the most important jobs I have as a leader is to try and remind everybody at AWS that it is still day one. (laughs) It is very, very early in the cloud journey um, that uh, there's way more work to do than we have already done and that uh, our customers demand and expect us to be innovating on their behalf, it's our job to do that and figure out how to create a good business for ourselves along the way, not to figure out you know how to create a good business and bring customers along with us. And I think you gotta have a lot of leadership, a lot of cultural mechanisms to continuously remind you know, everybody across what is now a pretty scaled and pretty sizable team about you know how we believe we wanna operate and how we want our world to work.
0: You spent a few years outside Amazon as the CEO of Tableau, when you came back, how has your leadership changed? And also, how does your leadership change with age and experience?
1: Uh, I think that uh, over time, partially, as you say, from age and experience and, and partially from just being able to step away and uh, operating in a different environment and get getting a new look uh, on, uh, on the world, uh, I think one thing I've really tried to focus on over the past few years is um, uh, leading with empathy. And... Um, Some people confuse, by the way, empathy with sympathy, very different. To me, empathy means understanding, understanding. So uh, understanding where people come from, understanding why they're saying what they're saying, instead of just focusing on the words coming out of somebody's mouth, trying to go back a step and understand, you know, are they saying this because they're worried about a program? Are they saying this, you know, what's going on Or, or what's going on with the person, the human being? Where, where are they coming from? And uh, in order to do that, uh, I've tried to really, really focus, as obvious as it may sound, I've tried really, really hard to focus on listening more over the past few years.
0: Can empathy be learned? Is it an acquired skill?
1: Absolutely. I think it starts with your listening skills. So uh, I've figured out over the past few years that um, I don't learn that much when I talk. And that I learn a lot more when I listen. So I, I think they're, they're very tactical things, very tangible things, I should say, like, uh, like listening.
0: And would your wife agree to this?
1: <laughs> on some days, on my better day, <laughs> maybe maybe not on all days, but <laughs> good question. Um, so I, I think absolutely it can be learned. I like to think that um, you know I've gotten better, uh, not perfect, but better and better at this uh, over the years. And I think um, if you have empathy and, and really start, and really listen and understand where people are coming from, um, that allows you to be you know, really open and honest, and uh, in return, and you know, I, my personal leadership style, I, I, I try to really be uh, you know, open and honest and transparent and let people understand what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking it. And um, I, I think that, that really resonates with, with most people if, if they feel that you've brought them along the discussion, that you've brought them along the decision process, uh, they've had a voice, they've been heard, there's, there's been thoughtful discussion. I've had many examples where I've had to make a decision which you know, a lot of people disagree with. And I found that in the vast majority of cases, they don't like the fact that we've decided you know something that, that they wouldn't have decided, but they're okay with it. They're okay with it because of the process. They're okay because they feel respected, because they feel listened to, and they trust uh, that their leaders are, um, even if not always you know in complete agreement with them, that they have the uh, best intentions and that they're uh, they're going through a thoughtful, appropriate process.
0: How do you deal with stress?
1: Stress? What stress? <laughs> no, we we're in a very I'm uh, very privileged. We're in an incredible uh, business. I have an incredible position. I'm I'm very very lucky. But uh, it is fast paced. Of of course, there's there's stress. Uh, I think in a couple ways. Well, one of which is at work, having a really really good team and and knowing that I can uh, I can talk to the people on my team. Um, people used to tell me, "Oh, the CEO job is very lonely." I- I've never found it lonely. I think that's a choice, and I don't find it lonely because uh, my senior leaders know what's going on. I don't keep things inside my own head. I share with them. Um, they they help me. Uh, they make my ideas better. They bring new ideas, which are, um, you know, usually better than mine. And uh, we really operate as a team. And I think that reduces my personal stress at work. And then I think it's really important to set boundaries and to have time for uh, whatever it is that's important to you. Um, For me, you know, my family is really important. Spending time with the family is important. There's also some uh, sporting things I love to do. I love to water ski in the summer. I love to play tennis year-round. And um, you got to carve out time for those things to, to stay whole and to stay healthy. Do you read I don't read nearly as much as I would like to. Uh, I, I, I do read, but uh, unfortunately, at this particular stage, it's a, a l- little more episodic. But uh, I do love to read, and I've been uh, been a lifelong reader since I was a little kid.
0: We have tens of thousands of young people listening to this. What is your advice to them?
1: Uh, I think advice to young people. Um, well, I wish there was probably a lot of advice I should have been given when I was young. So uh, what to choose? I would say uh, maybe two things. Um, one is... Um, try and remember that you have a long life hopefully and a long career and and i think people early in their career are, are measuring themselves against their their peers that they went to university with or that they started a job with and you know whether you do something 12 months earlier or later than i do you know it really doesn't matter uh, what matters is the experience you gain so just gain experience build skills you know do things which you can see uh, could be valuable to you you know down the line and I promise that um, you know, if you gain those skills, it really won't matter that you know, 20 years from now, um, that I had some promotion six months before you did. Um, so just take that long-term view about skill building. And the second thing I'd say, and I really wish that um, you know, I'd learned this earlier in my career, is this concept of being um, vocally self-critical. And uh, most people are able to you know very quickly uh, uh, critique somebody's shirt. Uh, whether they like the coffee they're drinking that day. But when uh, when when the camera turns on themselves, uh, they lose that objectivity because it's it, it's painful and it makes you insecure. And I think if you can understand what you're really good at, what you're not so good at, uh, what you really want to work on, if you have that clarity of understanding, uh, it's the old adage, you can't manage what you can't measure. And if you can't sort of understand yourself, how can you really hope to uh, to know what to work on? And I think if you can just be objective uh, with yourself about what the things you want to work on are, no matter how good you actually are at other things, um, that is an incredibly powerful skill.
0: Well, it's been really great talking to you. We've been investing in Amazon for more than 20 years, and we are just so grateful for all the value that you have created. And also, thank you for running our operations up in the cloud.
1: Well, it's a, it's a privilege. Uh, we love working with you. We love working with all of our customers. Uh, we have got an incredibly passionate team, and uh, we're just getting started, so we'll keep going.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much.